Good morning. It's Wednesday, June 9th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamitha Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. While millions of people lost their jobs during the pandemic, U.S. billionaires, they did really well. Collectively, they added $1.2 trillion to their fortunes since January 2020. The huge gap between rich and poor in the U.S. got wider during the pandemic. And that has a lot of people saying the U.S. tax system favors the rich and needs to change. President Biden is making tax increases on the wealthy a central part of his plans. But according to a new report, raising taxes alone might not be enough to do the trick. ProPublica got access to IRS data on thousands of the richest U.S. taxpayers, spanning more than 15 years. And it found billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg are regularly paying just fractions of their ballooning wealth. In some years, some of these wealthiest people on the list paid no income taxes at all. But we're not talking about anything illegal here. A key point in this report is that the rich don't have to break laws to avoid paying taxes. There's a lot to unpack here, but one useful way to think about how this happens is to understand what's considered taxable and what's not. For the typical American, the main or only source of income is wages, hourly pay or salary from a job. But for America's ultra-rich, they're making way more money in other ways. ProPublica found that for the 25 wealthiest Americans, wages only made up 1.1 percent of their total reported income. ProPublica crunched the numbers and found that these people paid a true tax rate of only 3.4 percent. That's in part because wages are taxed at a higher rate than dividends and capital gains from investments. And those taxes only bite when you sell stocks. So as ProPublica spells out, what the super wealthy can do is avoid selling their investments. Instead, they can use those investments as collateral to take out loans. The IRS doesn't consider the borrowed money income, so the super rich don't pay taxes on it. It's the accounting equivalent of having your cake and eating it too. The IRS is investigating how the tax information got into the hands of journalists. ProPublica says, despite privacy concerns, it's telling this story because it's in the public interest. It adds to an informed debate about tax policy in this country. For months now, some scientists have been calling for more attention to be paid to exploring whether the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 came from a lab leak. President Biden acknowledged the theory last month when he ordered a close review of plausible origin scenarios. We want to point you to a Vox article that we think does a clear job of laying out what we know and what we don't know about the lab leak theory. And importantly, Vox underscores the fact that what we don't know about the theory should not be mistaken for evidence that it's true. Early in the pandemic, many scientists believed the most plausible explanation was animal-to-human infection. A less plausible scenario was a laboratory spillover. But when President Trump claimed, without clear evidence, that China was responsible for a lab leak that led to the coronavirus pandemic, that fueled conspiracy theories. Vox quoted one epidemiologist who said, It's not that the lab leak hypothesis was a fringe theory. 
It's that it was promoted in a fringe way by people with agendas. This story has picked up more traction lately because of some mainstream reporting about lab practices in China. The Wall Street Journal wrote about U.S. intelligence reports about cases of flu-like symptoms in researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. These predated the first confirmed case of COVID-19. And one reason for the lack of a satisfying, clear conclusion is the Chinese government is not fully cooperating. Government officials withheld data and records. Scientists with the World Health Organization say the Chinese government tightly controlled their efforts to investigate COVID's origins in Wuhan. Montana is one of the few states without its own medical school. Dr. Paul Dolan has been trying to change that. He's an executive at a hospital system in Great Falls, and he's been working to bring a nonprofit medical school to his state. So he was surprised to learn that a for-profit operation was trying to beat him to the punch, launch a school of its own. There are only a handful of for-profit medical schools in the U.S., but more of them are opening up, and it's raising questions about how the U.S. will train its next generation of doctors. NPR has a story here. The background is that more than a century ago, the U.S. banned for-profit medical schools. Back then, there was a concern that these schools were accepting anyone willing to pay tuition and producing low-quality doctors who could undermine the faith we have in our healthcare system. But in the 90s, a legal ruling essentially allowed the for-profit medical school industry to take root. Now, critics of the for-profit model questioned the lack of transparency around tuition. Where does the money go? NPR says that nonprofit schools put their extra money back into the schools, but that's not necessarily the case for for-profits. It's also often unclear who's actually profiting. Many of these schools are owned by private equity groups who have interests in other sectors like real estate and mining. For-profit schools say as long as they're meeting medical standards— their business model is just not relevant. While there is a history of predatory institutions charging high rates for lesser education, for-profit schools will tell you accreditation standards for U.S. med schools are so high, it's not realistic to think these schools are going to produce unqualified doctors. Which brings up another factor, cost. If you go to a for-profit medical school that's unaccredited, you don't qualify for federal tuition assistance. So for students who don't have the cash, the only option is to take out a private loan, usually with high interest rates. NPR spoke to one doctor who graduated from a for-profit school. He says the quality of his education was up to par, but the size of his loans made things difficult. The National Geographic Society has been in the map-making business since 1915. And for the past several years, its MAPS committee has been considering a major update to the world's oceans. This month, National Geographic is making official what some scientists have been saying for years. It's time to recognize a fifth ocean. You can name the four oceans, right? Atlantic, Pacific, Indian, Arctic. And now, the Southern Ocean is being recognized as its own unique body of water. And there's always been something distinct about this waterway. Oceans are mostly defined by the continents around them, but the Southern Ocean, which surrounds Antarctica, is also defined by its current. 
specifically the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, which is a way of saying that its waters are in constant motion around the polar continent. And if you were ever to find yourself inside that current, you notice the water does take on different characteristics. It's less salty and colder. Beside the fact that observers have said its glaciers are bluer and its air is colder, the Southern Ocean completely engulfs its own continent, something no other ocean can lay claim to. One member of the Nat Geo team, Alex Tate, says he sees his map making as a form of journalism. The Earth is constantly going through changes, big and small. And Tate says that big decisions like naming a new ocean are important for future generations to better understand the world. If it isn't named, you might not see how specific it is and its importance to the environment. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're there, check out some of our audio stories. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.